A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, everyone. It's Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. Many of the great conflicts which Zach describes have their origins way back in medieval times. If you want to know about the First World War, for example, it might help you to learn about how the Balkans became what they are today. For more information like that, and to learn about the power which shielded Western Europe from the forces of the East, check out the History of Byzantium podcast. For now, though, let's find out what happens when diplomacy fails. It was not only the Swedish invasion in itself that undermined Polish statehood, it was also the weed of treason which was allowed to take root and with which we still struggle. Peter Namsky, a Polish academic and politician. Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails, episode 27.4, The Swedish Deluges, part 3. In the last episode, we looked closely at the Polish troubles and their inherent inability to end the struggle with its Cossack subjects. Its failure in this regard led to Russian intervention, a further Polish misfortune and a crisis for Charles Gustav of Sweden, who of course wanted a piece of the action, but didn't want to bear witness to the destruction of Poland and the resulting strengthening of Russia. He wanted fundamentally to join the Poles against the Russians, but thanks to John Casimir, the King of Poland's inability to renounce his claim on the Swedish throne, Charles Gustav felt he had no choice but to intervene against the Poles before the war ended and Sweden could reap no benefits whatsoever. I will now take you to the summer of 1655, when Charles Gustav of Sweden was overseeing one of the grandest campaigns his kingdom had ever seen. As a prelude to the greatest shakeup of Central Europe, in recent memory. The series of events that led Charles Gustav of Sweden to move against his Polish rival were far from straightforward, and Charles's motives for launching the war were in themselves far from savoury. Poland in late 1654 was enduring simultaneous social, economic, military, strategic, moral and national crises, and had failed for almost seven years to suppress a revolt from its southernmost provinces in modern-day Ukraine. It was in the Ukraine that the Cossacks waged a guerrilla war against their Polish overlord. But it wasn't until Russian intervention in early 1654 that events for Poland took a more serious turn. Unable to soundly defeat its Cossack elements, Polish forces terminally failed to defend the realm against the foreign Russian attacker either, with the result that a Polish capitulation of some magnitude appeared at least somewhat imminent. Not willing to allow the Baltic-European power balance to shift without his say-so, the new Swedish king, Charles Gustav, had initially leant towards intervening on behalf of Poland with the aims of defeating the Russian menace 
and perhaps picking up some Polish consolation prizes along the way. Such a campaign might have even brought a level of Polish affection, but it was not to be. Poland's elected king, John Casimir, failed to relinquish his claims on the Swedish throne. And because this prerequisite for Swedish aid was unfulfilled, and since Charles Gustav could hardly stand back and watch Russia reap all the spoils, the decision was made in early 1655 to co-opt the aid of Russia in bringing about the dual invasion of the by now helpless Polish foe. However, though Charles Gustav's ambitions may have been grand, what he actually went on to achieve against his Polish foe exposed the latter's central weaknesses for all to see, ended any representations of it as a great power in Europe, and also jarred his neighbours so notably that the war would take on a new fearsome face of its very own. Charles Gustav set out in the summer of 1655 to fight the Poles, but by the time of the war's end in 1660 he had fought these Poles, as well as Russians, Lithuanians, Brandenburgers, Danes, Germans, and troops under the command of the Holy Roman Emperor. It was not the result he had hoped for, but the war itself is a stunning reminder of how the best laid plans and some of the most impressive achievements can lead one so awry. Charles Gustav's invasion of his cousin's kingdom began in earnest. In early July 1655, Swedish armies invaded Poland from Pomerania and Livonia, the former aiming to seize Danzig and complete the ring around the Baltic Sea that the Swedish Empire looked destined to encapsulate, the latter aiming to invade Poland proper. Swedish armies did not have to wait long for a decisive fight. In fact, as far as decisive battles go, the Battle of Uchi, apologies to anyone offended by the pronunciation, I don't actually speak Polish, effectively tore the heart from the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. It wasn't just the fact that Sweden's military force sufficiently intimidated the hastily formed civilian militia into surrender, it was the fact that the Polish commanders of this army, the governors of the two provinces that together made up Greater Poland, capitulated and accepted as their overlord Charles Gustav of Sweden. It meant that this battle on the 25th of July 1655, which barely amounted to a skirmish before negotiations began, signalled the beginning of the end for Polish resistance to the Swedish invasion. The actions of these two Polish governors, whose names I'm going to avoid mentioning in case I further offend anyone with my pronunciation, or confuse you with too many names, effectively pushed over the first domino in a series of dominoes that led all the way to Warsaw. News of their betrayal was met with fear, anger and disbelief in John Casimir's court, and he began the process of desperately contacting possible allies as far flung as France in an attempt to either mediate on Poland's behalf or prevent the collapse of his kingdom. Ferdinand III, Holy Roman Emperor and the most likely ally of John Casimir, could not be bought or persuaded by the now hysterical Polish king, but Charles Gustav was about to make things that much worse for his Vasa cousin. The military prowess of the Swedes was matched only by their fearsome reputation, and as one Swedish army under commander Arvid Wittenberg captured Poznan, Charles Gustav marched his army to link up and prepare for the march on Warsaw. After defeating a token force on the 23rd of August in the Battle of Sabota, Charles Gustav was able to link up with Wittenberg and march on Warsaw. What followed was especially significant. For the first time in its history, the Polish capital was occupied on the 8th of September 1655. After sufficiently cementing his position and leaving a token force under the command of Wittenberg behind in Warsaw, Charles Gustav set out to catch his cousin, who had fled with his court to Krakow. Barely stopping for refreshments, Charles's forces defeated yet another Polish force in the Battle of Wonicz on October the 3rd, which opened the way to the ancient Polish capital, which itself was seized after a short siege on the 13th. Charles's success was undeniable. At one time Sweden faced Poland at a severe and notable disadvantage. It was the Scandinavian backwater of the Baltic, while Poland-Lithuania was the economic and cultural powerhouse of Central Europe. Poland was putting the finishing touches on its state motto, while Sweden was attempting to reconcile its major rungs of society into a workable system. Yet here was Sweden having virtually conquered its rival in all but name, with nothing left of Poland but a thin strip of land that John Casimir had to now call home. 
the situation looked especially bleak for John Casimir. And, as Charles's unsated quest for conquest led him to return to the siege of Danzig and Poland-Lithuanian partners were rumoured to be close to surrendering themselves to Sweden, the end seemed to be a painfully long time in coming. The time has come to introduce a major Polish-Lithuanian noble family to you all. Will you welcome please to our narrative, Prince Janusz Radziwill II. This Calvinist nobleman, whose wealthy family was Lithuanian in origin but had become Polish by tradition, had heaped influence upon himself and his closer family over the years, and had played a large part in advocating greater Lithuanian autonomy within the Commonwealth. His actions, seen in his frequent use of the horrific Liberum Veto in the Lithuanian Parliament, further delayed any hope of reform or peace in the early 1650s. Radziwill was especially concerned that Lithuania would be overrun by the Russians in the early stages of the Russo-Polish War that preceded Sweden's invasion, and he thoroughly blamed John Casimir for failing to protect the Lithuanian portion of the Commonwealth from foreign attack. Janus was particularly critical of John Casimir's decision to retain his claim on the Swedish throne, since he rightfully believed that this would spell ruin for a Poland already swamped in Russian problems. Now that he was in a position to say I told you so, Janus did not weep long for the Commonwealth, accepting what he believed to be the only rational course of action. On the 17th of August 1655, he had signed a document called the Treaty of Kiedny, which placed Lithuania under the protection of Sweden, effectively ending the Commonwealth as Europe knew it, though the treaty did not explicitly state that the agreement terminated the Commonwealth. However, as the position of the Poles grew weaker still, and as the Russians, undaunted, grew ever closer to the more important heartland of Lithuania, Janus formalised in law what even Gustavus Adolphus could previously only have salivated over. With the Union of Kiedeni on the 20th of October 1655, Janus Radziwill transformed the previous treaty and created in an instant a Swedish-Lithuanian Union to be administered in its Lithuanian portion by... Coincidentally, Janusz Radziwill and his cousin Bogoslav. The agreement sent shockwaves throughout Europe. Not only had Charles Gustav captured all of Poland's most valuable land by this stage, but he also seemed content to break apart the very fabric of the Commonwealth state. Since 1569, the Union of Lublin had fused together Poland and Lithuania into a mutually beneficial union. Now it seemed, less than a century later, it was over without a whimper. Just as surely as John Casimir appeared to have lost his dominion, Poland appeared to have lost its union. The Commonwealth would never be the same again. Charles Gustav remained distracted with his main force besieging Danzig, but while there other Swedish armies continued to press the Swedish standard further and further into Polish lands. Because it was known that John Casimir had taken refuge in Silesia and may attempt to return to Poland at some point, a series of Swedish armies were prepared on the border to screen for any sign of him. One of these small armies, about 2,000 men strong, made the mistake of laying siege to a monastery called Jasnogora. The heroic defence of the monks and volunteers there became music to the ears of the remaining Polish national hopefuls throughout their own country. The news of the failure of Swedish arms and the subsequent withdrawal of its forces from the monastery was combined with the tales of the excesses of the Swedish soldier against his Catholic Polish subject. In their attempts to make war feed itself, Swedish administrators and generals, particularly the commander we encountered earlier, Arvid Wittenberg, only succeeded in inflaming Polish opinion and creating an intolerable situation for the invader. As Robert Frost in his book, After the Deluge, Poland, Lithuania and the Second Northern War, 1655-1600, notes, quote, Charles Gustav found Poland easier to conquer than to control. He showed little inclination to take the offensive against Muscovy. Indeed, Swedish envoys began talks with Tsar Alexis. The necessity for Sweden to make the war pay for itself rapidly alienated the Polish nobility. As the army levied contributions from royal and noble estates alike, 
demonstrating the insincerity of Charles's promises to respect local privileges. There was not enough Protestants in the Commonwealth to provide a solid nucleus of support, and Sweden was unable to exploit religious divisions in the way that it had during the Thirty Years' War. Indeed, Swedish outrages perpetrated against the Catholic Church did much to turn opinion against the invader. Encouraged by the spread of resistance, John Casimir returned to Poland in early 1656, and by spring most Poles had abandoned the Swedes. End quote. Charles Gustav's army was in fact better trained, disciplined and organised than Gustavus Adolphus's had been in the early 1630s, but the science of combating guerrilla warfare remained out of the reach of Stockholm at this time, with the result that, despite everything that had been inflicted upon it, 1656 was to be the year of gradual withdrawal from Poland, as Charles's attentions became focused elsewhere. Already Charles had become distracted by exterior events. The Elector of Brandenburg, Frederick William, had been making suggestive gestures in late 1655 when he moved his forces to Ducal Prussia for its own protection. Such an act was viewed by Charles Gustav as something of a provocation, despite the very complicated relationship between Ducal Prussia and Brandenburg. So let's examine it a bit. In 1655, Brandenburg was in a personal union with Ducal Prussia, but Ducal Prussia was a protectorate of the Polish king, which meant that the elector of Brandenburg had to pay homage to the king of Poland as his vassal. Such a relationship, basically, placed Frederick William in a difficult position when Sweden invaded the Commonwealth and left a trail of destruction across both Royal, or West, and Ducal, or East, Prussia. Don't forget that Royal Prussia was actually directly controlled and administered by Poland, and contained the critical port of Danzig. Just to clarify, when I say Royal Prussia, I mean West Prussia, and when I say Ducal, I mean East Prussia. I personally prefer the terms that were given to the two Prussias by the Poles, i.e. Ducal and Royal, rather than the geographic ones, i.e. East and West, so I'm going to call them Royal and Ducal Prussia more often than not. Through all this talk of Prussia, I'm reminded of Hitler's attempts to justify his attack on Poland in 1939 by claiming the German right to administer Danzig. West and East Prussia had indeed been under the control of the German Empire until 1918. But in the 1919 Versailles Conference, in recognition of the facts of history, the Allies had handed Danzig and all of what was named the Polish Corridor, but what actually constituted a portion of Royal Prussia here, over to the new Polish Republic. Germans had protested at the time that such a handing over of German land was unfair, and indeed Germans did live and prosper in the region of the Polish Corridor. However, before they were citizens of the German Empire, they had been happy citizens of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. And I think one of the reasons I often find this period so fascinating geographically is because it can sometimes feel like nothing is in its proper place. The idea that Poland would own Prussia or receive homage from the future line of German emperors is somewhat incredible. But it did happen. Frederick William, ancestor of Frederick the Great, just as much as he was ancestor of Wilhelm II, was a Brandenburg elector that lived in a world which recognised Polish predominance over Danzig. For history's sake, it was only during the partitions of Poland in the late 18th century, or more particularly when the Kingdom of Prussia opportunistically annexed Royal Prussia in 1772, that Poland's relationship with Royal Prussia came to a screeching halt. The proof is thus in the Prussia. It only goes to show how skewed Hitler's version of history was when he argued for forced reunification of all German peoples in 1939. Sometimes it's easy to forget the portions of history that give context to the history we know so well. For reasons like Hitler, though, it is vital we do not forget what came before. I can say that I am happy with Poland's current geographical makeup on the map of Europe, because it at least respects the fact that, for a millennia, Poland inhabited the shores of the Baltic, and was the overlord of two provinces that, though they seemed so insignificant on the surface, would go on to mean so much for Germany's future. And with that small anecdote out of the way, let's get back to Frederick William of Brandenburg, or, as history would term him, the Great Elector.
Having watched the unfolding situation with a growing sense of unease, the Elector of Brandenburg, Frederick William, was faced with unwelcome news in early 1656. The distinction between Ducal and Royal Prussia, Swedish delegates informed him then, was no longer relevant because, owing to John Casimir's absence and the collapse and dissolution of his Commonwealth, such Polish terms did not exist anymore. The agreements between he and the Polish king were now void. Sweden was Brandenburg's new master where Prussia was concerned. If Frederick William wished to rule Ducal Prussia, he would now have to pay homage to the king of Sweden instead. Royal Prussia, meanwhile, looked set to become another Swedish dependency, as Swedish armies surrounded Danzig in a lengthy siege, with the capital of Royal Prussia, Poznan, already having come under Swedish control. The Treaty of Königsberg in January 1656 signified this new attention Charles Gustav was paying to the Baltic shores after his warpath through all of Poland proper. The agreement forced Frederick William, under threat of invasion from the Swedes, to accept Charles Gustav as his new overlord and provide Sweden with 1,500 soldiers as ransom. It was far from the last agreement that the King of Sweden would conclude with his wily neighbour, the, for the moment, Prussian vassal. But Brandenburg wasn't the only power that Swedish attention now had to address. In 1656, while Swedish armies remained in control of the most important Polish regions and cities, the guerrilla war was taking its toll. The Polish state should have ceased to exist, based on the catastrophic losses it had incurred, but the national resilience of the Poles at this stage was considerable enough to resist the invader. By the second half of 1656, the war against the Swedes was beginning to tell, and only the major cities of Poland remained in Swedish hands which led to obvious problems of supply for Sweden's scattered garrisons throughout occupied Poland. There were concerns aired in Stockholm that to hold on to Polish land any longer would be too costly, and that the situation was too different to that of Germany two decades before, where Swedish forces could carve out a definite presence for themselves. The Polish peasantry in particular had become emboldened by tales of Swedish atrocities against church property a somewhat predictable result coming from a Swedish empire which based its existence upon making war feed war through plunder. There of course was going to be unhappy Poles on the other end. Poland, although it no longer posed a military threat to Sweden, had never been the genuine target anyway, as some of Charles Gustav's advisers sought to remind him in mid-1656. The real threat was Russia and the position she had carved out for herself beside Sweden's Livonian territories in the modern-day Baltic states. Yet, after having invaded the Commonwealth, Charles Gustav had to continue to give a good account of his forces, even if what he was planning at this stage amounted to a fighting withdrawal from Polish territory. Charles Gustav got word that John Casimir had returned from his exile in Silesia in January 1656 and had taken up residence in the city of Lvov, one of only two Commonwealth cities, the other being Danzig, that wasn't in Swedish hands. Polish forces began to converge on their king's position, and such a convergence attracted the attention of Charles Gustav, who hoped to defeat this last bastion of Polish resistance and even capture the Polish king. On the 19th of February 1656, the two armies met in a small skirmish. With the Swedes victorious, but the bulk of the Polish strength remained holed up, in the Zamosk Fortress, one of the Commonwealth's most impressive series of fortifications. When the Swedes reached the gates of the mighty walls, they realised that their cannons wouldn't be adequate for a lengthy siege. Without the Zamosk Fortress, Lvov could never be secured, so the Swedes opted to abandon the idea of attacking either fortress or city. John Casimir's limited domains thus remained safe for the moment. At this stage, following the death of the traitorous Polish-Lithuanian nobleman, Janusz Radziwill, who, if you'll remember, had tried to bind Lithuania to Sweden, with himself and his cousin as its rulers, Lithuanian forces had risen up in league with their Polish allies, effectively negating the previous attempts that had been made to split the Commonwealth apart along Swedish lines. Perhaps such comebacks did encourage Poland's beleaguered forces because they began harrying the Swedes in earnest with the result that Swedish forces under the command of their king fought a gradual retreat 
across the breadth of the Polish countryside. It was a very effective and organised retreat, but Charles Gustav couldn't deny that he was still losing ground. Things appeared grimmer still for Charles when news came that two large Polish armies were converging on his position, with estimates placing the Polish force at 23,000 strong. With news that his brother-in-law was in peril, Frederick IV of Baden-Durlach, whose sister was married to Charles Gustav as a way of sticking it to Denmark, the next-door neighbour of Frederick IV's duchy, Frederick moved out with an army of his own about 5,000 strong. Freddy would lose the resulting battle to elite Polish noble cavalry units on the 7th of April, 1656, in the Battle of Warka, but having used these forces to tackle Frederick IV, only the second-rate Polish forces remained to surround Charles Gustav, and he was thus able to escape. The King of Sweden had had a close shave, and he owed a lot to his historically underrated brother-in-law, Frederick IV. However, Poland was gradually rising against him. Only days before, on the 1st of April, John Casimir had staged a brilliant propaganda coup against the Swedes by orchestrating a much-publicised mass in Lvov's Great Cathedral. It was there that, in grand symbolic ceremony, John Casimir of Poland entrusted the Commonwealth under the Virgin Mary's protection. Such an act, which was referred to as making a queen out of Catholicism's most celebrated lady, was designed to unite Poles against their Orthodox Russian and Protestant Swedish invaders. Both invasions and both foreign powers had underestimated the passion that the vast majority of Polish citizens still held for Catholicism and both also committed grossly sectarian acts and badly misjudged their situation. With the victory against Frederick IV coming less than a week after John Casimir's symbolic act, God seemed to be finally on the side of the Poles, just at the time when, coincidentally, all of Europe seemed to rally against the Swedes. Russia had, unlike Sweden, been fully motivated in its invasion of Poland in mid-1654. But by mid-1656, Moscow was coming to the same conclusions reached by Sweden on the eve of its declaration of war on Poland. That in the interest of the balance of power, one must align oneself with the weaker side. Sweden had been prevented from doing this because of John Casimir's refusal to renounce his claims on the Swedish throne but Russia possessed no such qualms and opportunistically had begun negotiations with what remained of Poland in late 1655, with a view towards turning its forces against Sweden and forming a temporary Russo-Polish alliance, as long as a break in the Russo-Polish war occurred. It was a plainly opportunistic move by Tsaradaxis' forces, and reflects the real politique of the time, but it also provided a clear-cut problem for the Swedes. Although they could now fight the war that they really wanted to fight, this Russo-Swedish war was to become a side note of the wider war thanks to Swedish preoccupation elsewhere. In May 1656, a temporary ceasefire was arranged between Russia and Poland, and by late June Russian forces were already converging on key positions held by Sweden in the Baltic. Tsar Alexis hoped to wrest Livonia, essentially much of the coastline of the modern-day Baltic states, from Sweden and restore thus Russian access to the Baltic Sea, as Russia had enjoyed before its war against Sweden at the beginning of the 17th century. Therefore, Russian forces moved to capture Riga, Sweden's foremost Baltic port that had once been in Russian hands. Russia was incapable of mounting a proper siege of Riga, though, thanks to a dogged Swedish defence. While years had been spent previously fortifying the port, and Sweden could now resupply the port by sea, 
while Russia had no naval presence in the Baltic to speak of at this time. Although the Russians made some progress and stormed some Swedish settlements along the way, Riga itself proved too strong for Russian arms. Overall, Russian forces fared poorly against the Swedes, unless the latter was at a distinct disadvantage. Years of campaigning against the Poles and other lesser-rate armies had made the Russian forces more confident, but it had also led to a decrease in professionalism that the experienced Swedes more than made up for. Despite the fact that the Russian army was commanded by the Tsar himself, when Swedish forces retreated into the reinforced bastion of the Riga port, Russian forces proved unable to dislodge them, and they were forced to lift the siege in early October 1656. The Russian campaign against Riga can be considered as the de facto main event of the Russo-Swedish War. Although the whole experience frightened the Adolphus out of the Swedes, it had little material impact on their empire as a whole, though it was certainly a distraction from more pressing matters in Poland and a troubling sign of things to come. After having failed to capture Riga, the Russians were on the defensive, with the Swedes unwilling or unable to come out and fight, thanks to campaigns elsewhere pulling the empire's resources in numerous directions. Russia's truce with Poland was formalised with the Truce of Vilna on the 3rd of November 1656. But for all intents and purposes, the Russo-Swedish War was to be a sitting war from here onwards, which was just as well for Sweden, considering the growing breadth of adversaries that it would soon have to face. Thanks to losses against inspired Polish forces, Charles Gustav felt obliged to inspire a level of cooperation in Brandenburg, Prussia his only real ally militarily in the war against Poland at the time. The Treaty of Konigsberg in January 1656 had forced Brandenburg's compliance due to the presence of large and impressive Swedish armies on its borders. But in late June, the Treaty of Marienburg sweetened the deal for Frederick William of Brandenburg somewhat, because although he would remain a vassal of Sweden due to his rule over Ducal or East Prussia, he was promised the inheritance of four provinces of Greater Poland, which included the city of Poznan. Such prizes gave Frederick William the incentive to align himself more enthusiastically with Sweden, and just in time too because a reinvigorated Commonwealth army recaptured Warsaw from the Swedes on the 1st of July, mere days after the Swedish-Brandenburg alliance had been concluded. At the end of July, a combined army of Swedes and Brandenburgs attacked a Polish-Lithuanian army in the Battle of Warsaw. Despite the fact that the Poles outnumbered the army commanded by Charles Gustav almost 2-1, to one, Charles was able to win the day. He went on to recapture Warsaw from the Poles and vindicate the previous months he had spent negotiating with Brandenburg. Frederick William's troops were well drilled and professional, holding their own with the veteran Swedes and German mercs that constituted the bulk of Charles's armies. The victory was a great psychological achievement for Charles Gustav and for the Swedish cause in general which did appear to be stalling in Poland by mid-1656. But in material and strategic terms, it made little difference to Sweden's Polish position. Sweden simply could not muster enough armies to subdue the kind of resistance Poland was offering. Only a few weeks after capturing Warsaw back from the Poles, Charles was forced to abandon it and withdraw to Royal Prussia, in preparation for a defence of the Swedish position there. Supported by a detachment of Crimean Tartars, the Poles set about plundering Frederick William's ducal Prussian domains, and under pressure to defend the region by the Prussian Junkers there, he sent an army to attack the combined Commonwealth Tartar army now 15,000 strong. The resulting Battle of Prozgun on the 8th of October 1656 was a success for the Commonwealth, who also captured, as an added bonus, one of the generals on the enemy side. This general, who had commanded the rebel commonwealth portion of the army against their commonwealth brethren, happened to be none other than Bogoslav Radziwill, the cousin of the hated Lithuanian traitor Janusz Radziwill, better known as the nobleman that had pledged Lithuania into a union with Sweden in autumn 1655. The success of the commonwealth was short-lived though, and their ultimate goal of punishing the Brandenburg elector until he relinquished his Swedish alliance was ultimately unsuccessful. As Europe would discover, Brandenburg's wily elector was more than capable of discerning where the best opportunities for his electorate's fortunes lay, and he would shamelessly exploit such opportunities in the years to come. 
Brandenburg was able to recover from this loss in early October by inflicting a defeat on the Commonwealth, now without its Crimean auxiliaries, on the 20th of October in the Battle of Filipov. Such events were enough to concern Charles Gustav, who really did worry that Brandenburg would grow tired of the war and sue for peace. When Polish forces launched another invasion of the Brandenburg province of Newmark, essentially east of Brandenburg and terrifyingly close to home for the elector, Brandenburg was forced to withdraw its forces from Poland altogether and defend its home realm. In desperation at the possibility of losing his sole ally, did Charles Gustav sign the Treaty of Labiau with Brandenburg on the 20th of November 1656. As per the terms of this agreement, the third with Brandenburg in the space of a year, Charles Gustav granted Frederick William full rights as a sovereign over East Prussia. Brandenburg would now have to pay homage to nobody for its possession of the once Polish duchy. In return for a once-off payment of 120,000 Reichsthalers, Sweden would renege its right to collect Ducal Prussia's port tolls, though Frederick William had to recognise Swedish hegemony over essentially all of the Baltic coast, including that of Royal Prussia, which Charles Gustav remained unable to capture, and, what is more troubling, while attempting to besiege Danzig, a new foreign presence arrived on the scene to prevent its fall, the Dutch Republic. The Dutch Republic had watched Charles Gustav's romp through Poland with a cautious indifference, and had only begun to get truly concerned once Swedish attention returned to the Baltic. Because the Dutch relied so completely on the Baltic Sea for the maintenance of its entrepot trade, any threat to such a position had to be dealt with out of economic necessity. Johann de Witt, the Grand Pensionary of the States of Holland, and, owing to that province's sway in the Republic, essentially the de facto Prime Minister of the Dutch United Provinces, had sought to combat the troubling rise of Sweden and its total control over the Baltic by favouring Denmark in its dealings. It wasn't the first time that the Danes had been used as a pawn in Dutch concerns, and it would by no means be the last, but the two sides had concluded a defensive alliance in late 1649 for their own reasons. The Danish-Dutch relationship had soured somewhat, though, when the Danes failed to make their presence felt during the First Anglo-Dutch War in 1652. But such offences were discounted in 1655, when it became clear that the Dutch required another friend in the region to balance against the apparently insatiable Swedes. The issue for the Dutch was that Charles Gustav might conquer Royal Prussia, and thus complete his ring of encirclement around the Baltic Sea, whereupon he would have the power to impose harsher trade laws that might impinge Dutch profits. It was a very theoretical standpoint, but Charles Gustav had not exactly expelled the rumours that Swedish total dominion over the Baltic would not alter the status quo of economics and trade there. It didn't help that Charles Gustav had been offended by the Dutch alliance with Denmark, or that Charles Gustav felt he could empathise with Oliver Cromwell, the Lord Protector and, since the close of the First Anglo-Dutch War in 1654, something of a hated figure in The Hague. Thus, when news that the Dutch opinion was set against his seizing of Danzig and the creation of a Swedish imperium over the Baltic in its entirety, Charles Gustav opted to diplomatically attempt to satiate Dutch fears while not really toning down his own imperial plans for the region. In the complete domination of the Baltic coast, Charles Gustav was beginning to see the solution to his economic woes. And though he certainly did not wish ill on the Dutch, he made very few attempts to economically calm their nerves. Dutch efforts at trade with the Swedish blockaded port of Danzig looked set to become an international incident, as the Dutch maintained their right of access as the neutral salesman of the world, and the Swedes upheld that they were besieging this port and don't want any of your wares, thank you very much. Such a stance increased Dutch tensions, and some that sympathised with the Danes favoured a war with Sweden. However, in a republic that wasn't far removed from conflict with the English, war with Sweden did not seem like the best policy for the profit-minded merchants that constituted the bulk of Dutch government. Such a war had the possibility of invoking the ire and declarations in response from England and France, and the position of Denmark in such an event wasn't judged to be especially strong. To avoid war, a compromise was arranged in secret with John Casimir of Poland. The Dutch would unblock the harbour at Danzig, enabling trade and their profits to flow back through, but the Dutch would refrain from concluding any notable treaty with the Poles that would suggest their leaning against the Swedes. 
The very spectacle of the large, newly crafted Dutch warships ramming the blockade of Danzig in July 1656 was impressive, and demonstrated the new reliance on Dutch large warships that the English had beaten into them in their previous disaster of a naval war. Yet the Dutch diplomats after that event made every opportunity to stress that they had no interest in a war with Sweden, and that their prime interest in the region was the steady flow of commerce and the uninterrupted transportation of grain from the Baltic to their shores. Ordinarily, Charles Gustave may have made more of an issue out of the fact that the meddling Dutch had ruined his plans for Danzig, and may even have been tempted to test the diplomatic waters and see if any would-be Dutch opponents might give him a chance for revenge, as the Dutch had feared he might. Yet the Dutch gamble paid off because, in the atmosphere of mid-1656, with the Poles rallying, Brandenburg doubtful and Russia hostile, the King of Sweden was inclined to listen to reason. He signed the Treaty of Elbing on the 11th of September 1656, and in so doing recognised the status of the Dutch as a most favoured nation when it came to the issue of Baltic trade. The siege of Danzig was lifted, and another blow against total Swedish domination of the Baltic coast had been struck, this time with Dutch interference. Such facts may suggest a war on the horizon, since conflict had broken out in the post-Westphalian world for far less. However, the importance of keeping the Dutch friendly, the presence and power of their navy, and the values of their unbroken trade convinced many in Stockholm that the time may be right to attempt a closer alliance with the Dutch, but some overtly hostile elements remained in The Hague that favoured Denmark, and in any case, it would have been incredibly difficult to craft a Swedish-Dutch alliance, so long as the Danish-Dutch alliance remained in place. Charles Gustav thus managed to escape a widening of the war against Poland by keeping the Dutch-Swede and essentially giving them what they wanted. Yet darker clouds loomed ahead. The Holy Roman Emperor Ferdinand III, having ascended to the throne during the Thirty Years' War, and while the Holy Roman Empire had been at war with Sweden in 1637, knew the dangers of Swedish power, and was greatly concerned at Charles Gustav's upsetting of the Central European balance of power. Charles Gustav was fortunate that Ferdinand III's concerns at the Swedish advances were upset by his general disinterest in Poland and his lack of passion for Central European affairs not to mention his preoccupation with attempting to consolidate Habsburg control of its swollen post-1648 hereditary lands. Despite these impediments to a complete commitment against Sweden, though, Ferdinand III did sign the Treaty of Vienna on the 1st of December 1656. This agreement furnished John Casimir with a paltry 4,000 troops to be maintained at Poland's expense, John Casimir was obviously not entirely pleased with his Habsburg neighbour's supposed commitment, but it was better than nothing, and the Polish king could at least morbidly hope that the ageing emperor would soon be replaced with his more enthusiastic second son and heir, Leopold. Such a man as Leopold, whom John Casimir was already in direct contact with by courier, would tip the balance in favour of the Poles. Because the heir apparent to the Holy Throne seemed determined to raise an anti-Swedish coalition yet again as his father and grandfather had done in the years before. As it transpired, and unfortunately for Sweden, Ferdinand III did die in early April 1657. The death of this relic of days past meant much for the beleaguered Polish king, and John Casimir's hopes were vindicated when on the 27th of May 1657, Leopold, as the newly minted emperor, agreed to sign the Second Treaty of Vienna. This time, the Emperor gave a proper commitment to furnish John Casimir with troops, and stand definitively against Sweden in a league that began recruiting members in earnest, including from Charles Gustav's own allied camp in Brandenburg. Time would tell if the growing anti-Swedish league would see success. Russia had to deal with the diplomatic consequences of its own actions too. Having made a temporary peace with the Poles in order to deal with Sweden, Russia's Tsar essentially bowed out of the reason he had invaded Poland in the first place. In reality, of course, he had done so in mid-1654 for purely opportunistic reasons, to recoup the losses inflicted upon Russia by Poland in previous years. Such a war manifesto would hardly have inspired a sense of morality in Russian troops, though, 
So intervention in Polish affairs was painted as an attempt to rescue the Orthodox Cossacks who had been battling Poland for years. The 1653 Union of Pereyaslav that had been pledged was supposed to bind Russia to the Cossack struggle until the war had been won. But by making peace with Poland, such a promise appeared to have been broken. Histories vary as to how Bogdan Komelnitsky, the leader of the Cossack revolt in the Ukraine, took the news that his Russian ally abandoned him for purely selfish reasons. Some paint him as having expected such a move all along and not taking offence because he understood the position of Russia and its need to combat the Swedish influence. Others describe him as throwing his lot in with Sweden and its war with the Poles that remained in full effect. However he felt about his Russian friends, there is no denying that the Cossacks get much more diplomatically active once their Russian ally made peace with the Poles. Under Swedish prodding, the Cossacks send peace feelers out to the Prince of Transylvania, George Rakachi, and actually crafted an intimidating Cossack-Transylvanian alliance that was in turn allied to Sweden. Combined with the slowly shrinking remnants of the Swedish presence in Poland, this Cossack-Transylvanian army would ensure that war would not leave Polish lands just yet. By the end of 1656, Swedish forces had left a trail of devastation in their wake, as well as stolen what wasn't nailed down from Poland's wealthiest cities and withdrawn mostly to the coast, but they were now preparing for a campaign that would redefine what the entire war meant, not just for Scandinavia or the Baltic, but for the entire continent. Although Poland's importance for the war appeared in the past for Charles Gustav though, he had crafted an insurance policy through diplomacy that was guaranteed to keep the Poles busy for the remainder of 1657. By combining the once bitter enemies of the Cossacks and Transylvanians together and uniting them under the Swedish banner, Charles Gustav had achieved a major diplomatic coup and had responded in kind to Leopold's growing participation in the slowly widening Northern War. Charles had also been wise enough to know when to pick his battles, and the Dutch pill of breaking the Danzig blockade was reluctantly swallowed in return for a series of Dutch guarantees and the assurance for Charles Gustav that he at least hadn't turned all of Europe against him. It was just as well that Charles Gustav had crafted such an intimidating block of his own, because as part of Leopold's attempts to furnish an anti-Swedish league, his diplomats had begun fanning the flames of the next stage of the Northern War. As far as these officials were concerned, they were attempting to alleviate the pressure on Poland by employing the services of Sweden's other bitter rival, the Danes. However, what these officials, and indeed the Holy Roman Emperor seems not to have realised, was just how vast the chasm between the once evenly matched Baltic rivals had grown. Far from dooming the Swedes to a two-front war, Leopold actually set in motion a series of events that led directly to Denmark's greatest loss in its history. The end of its dreams that aimed at ever resurrecting its Baltic dominion, and the second Swedish deluge of this northern war. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
This episode has been broken up into five parts for easier listening. You've reached the end of part three, but not the end of the war, so please check your downloads and resume listening to When Diplomacy Fells' coverage of the Swedish deluges. This episode has covered the collapse of Poland and the engendering of the war into a bitter struggle in Central Europe that drew the participation, or at least the concern, of all of Europe. We have seen the conquering might of the Swedish armies in all their splendour, but we've also seen their inability to totally conquer the Poles, as well as their uncanny knack for offending their rivals and neighbours that escalated the entire situation. Next time we'll examine the final phase of the war, as Denmark and Sweden begin the next incredible phase of their rivalry, and all of Europe is left aghast at its results. I hope you're enjoying the story so far, and that you'll join me in part four of the Swedish Deluges. Thanks. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 